Well, yeah, one of the fun things about being a startup church is that uh, we get to have these opportunities to have our first. So in a few weeks, we'll have our first Good Friday service with Northview Church. It'll be here on, uh, the, I think it's Friday the 19th of April. And this week, we had our first baby born to somebody attending Incline. So uh, Judah um, Belich is doing good. He and mom are still in the hospital recovering, uh, born on Wednesday. So keep them in your prayers. Uh, they're excited. They'd hope to uh, come this week. And, uh, but um, they're uh, getting adjusted to life together. And he's a smaller baby, so he's got to grow a little bit before they let him go home as well. Um, now, I grew up during my... Well, I was born here in Colorado Springs. And then sometime before I turned two or something, uh, we moved to Grand Junction, Colorado. And uh, lived there for uh, nine to ten years. And uh, I can remember that we uh, were in the middle of the 80s or the early 80s then. And my brother and I loved breakdancing and all that kind of music. And uh, we would watch the movies breaking one, one, two, three, and get out. Uh, he had friends, you know, if there's a piece of cardboard, they'd lay it out and they'd do the spins and the worm and so there's a big event uh, down at uh, Mesa College, I believe, in the auditorium, and none other than the First Lady, Nancy Reagan, came. And she's doing a nationwide campaign, and one of Randy's friends was able to get up there, and uh, they did some breakdancing with her. And, you know, and they did the chain wave, you know, where you start it here, and then you kind of bring it through to the other side, and uh, he used to be really good, but you can ask him. Uh, he's out on security. But... uh uh, what do you call it? As we did that, we went through there, but does anybody, is, I don't mean to date you, but remember the theme of her big thing? You know, first ladies always have something big. Yeah, just say no. She started that whole thing in schools, it was plastered everywhere, just say no. And, uh, and it was a, something, a pretty powerful catchphrase. And yet, uh, if you have kids, you know that catchphrase doesn't need to be taught. Because as soon as they learn the word no and figure out, I am a human being who has the freedom to say no, they say no even to things you know that they want. Why? Because they can say no. No is a powerful phrase that we need to learn and use in our lives, isn't it? Amazing how that two-little word, no, is vital for our lives, isn't it? Knowing when to say no, how to say no to certain things so we don't get too busy or so we protect ourselves. It's an important word. And today we're going to discover that even with all of Jesus' miracles and his healings and he was there in the flesh, people looked at him, heard his message and called a repentance and said no. The disciples went out and they heard people say no. <laughs> and so maybe we shouldn't be surprised when we are trying to share about Christ, witness for him, and we hear the word no. And I think that we are going to uh, learn to expect that we are going to hear the word no. And yet, in spite of the no's, we're going to see that the gospel still grows. For over 2,000 years, it has continued to spread and change lives. And sometimes people who say no, it's a not yet. Because eventually their hearts soften. 
So we're going to look at this idea today. We're going to look, um, kind of take two pass-throughs this passage. The first one I want to talk about, the unbelief that we see. And we're going to see three different kinds of unbelief um, that uh, are in this passage. We're going to see the idea of taking offense to the gospel, a disregard for the gospel, and then attacking those who deliver the gospel. Uh, And so unbelief can lead to these different responses. And as we open up, and we are in the Gospel of Mark, and we are um, traveling through and uh, passing through this book, it's been a really good journey, and we are in um, chapter 6. And Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up, where he was Joseph's son, where he had brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters. And where at some point, we don't know when, his father uh, had passed away and he being the eldest son was head of the family, probably took over the family business for a while because he didn't enter ministry until he was in his 30s. And so Jesus was well known. And it says he, um, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And he could no longer do mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people. And so Jesus comes and and they knew him pretty well. Knew his brothers. And and I, I don't think it's because they had something against him. They probably knew that this guy is one of our top guys in town. But I thought he just worked with wood. And they knew he grew up. Where did They were astonished because they knew he wasn't trained by a rabbi. They would have seen him doing that. Where did he get all this knowledge to speak? And what are all these rumors and stories they had heard about miracles that had been happening with Jesus? And so it says that they took offense at him. The idea of taking offense is to cease believing in, to... Um, cause to sin or to place a stumbling block in the way. There was a stumbling block for them uh, that was in the way of them believing Jesus. And those who took offense to him were actually putting a stumbling block in the way of those who may have come to believe Jesus. They're like, no way he can be like this. He's just a common carpenter. He can't be the Messiah. It reminds me of this idea of a stumbling block causing people to trip Uh, Going into the NCAA tournament, the big player is Zion Williamson from Duke. Everybody loves him. Well, in the ACC tournament, a guy fell down, and in super slow-mo, it looked like he stuck his foot out to trip him. And they went after him, but in full speed. I didn't think it looked like that, but uh, they caught him trying to trip him and make him stumble. And unknowingly, these doubters who were talking amongst in the crowd were causing people to stumble and not recognize who Christ is. They took offense at him. Like, and it's this idea that 
maybe they looked at him and said, well, he's just like us. What gives him the right to preach to us about repentance? What gives him the right? He grew up with us. Yeah, sure. He's one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Outstanding and upstanding businessman with his carpentry. But what gives him the right to speak to us? Uh, They were skeptical because they were so close to him. You know, I think sometimes we can be around church and be around religious thought or religious thinking and we can become so familiar that our familiarity, if you heard the phrase, breeds contempt. Uh, we, We can lose sight of what God has called us to do and merely be religious and and often people take offense at us because they look and say, well, you're a hypocrite. And I said, amen, come and join us. I got a whole church full of them. Okay? We, it's not being humble. We can cause people to stumble ourselves by not being humble in the gospel. But then when we share the gospel, people can take offense because of the world we live in, especially our culture today that says, you have your own beliefs. Don't ever tell me what to believe or Don't tell me that this is what the Bible says about how I'm living or what I'm doing. And so to take offense at is that that feeling that people are a little bit angry at you. They don't want to hear what you have to say. So Jesus responds and and he says, okay, I'm going to move out to the villages. And it says here that he was um, astonished at their unbelief Uh, and Whenever he was astonished at their unbelief, it's the idea that um, he marveled at it, just as they marveled at his teaching. Uh, I think it saddened his heart as well. Uh, But the amount of unbelief astonished him, and it's not that he couldn't do a miracle. I believe morally he was compelled not to do miracles among them because of their rejection of who he was. So he did a few miracles, and then the gospel Often when we hear, and we'll see this over and over, when we hear a no, it begins to be pushed out. When persecution happens, the gospel begins to be pushed out. So what does Jesus do? He moves out into the outlying villages. And then he makes a huge step. He sends out the 12 apostles. And he tells them that you're going to hear no's. And if you hear no's, then shake the dust off your feet if they reject your testimony and move on and go to the next town the next city the next people and so uh, i think disregard is a response that they saw some people may have just heard them speaking and be like who are who are they are they associated with jesus maybe they didn't even know it and they just walked by them on the streets or didn't stay to listen to them when they spoke and they preached there's a disregard Uh, Some people are just so busy with their lives, they don't have time to stop and think about religion or Jesus or the Bible or the gospel message. Or you wish that you could just have a spiritual conversation with somebody, but their mind isn't even in that spot at this time. And so there's going to be a disregard for the gospel. Now, we'll come back to this section in a moment, but remember the gospel of Mark, we told you, He's kind of like a modern-day blogger. So we're in the midst of this story, and he doesn't pick it up again until verse 30. He stops for 15 verses, and he talks about John the Baptist and Herod. 
And so it's kind of a blogger just going back and he's really giving it like, hey, here's what happened to that guy we talked about earlier. But it ties in with the passage. And so uh, he jumps to this spot and he talks about Herod, this ruler, King Herod, who had heard of Jesus' name and uh, he had become known. And John the Baptist is well known for his preaching and confrontation and uh, he would tell it like it is. And when Herod married Herodias and did so within the family and taking her as his wife when legally and morally he should not have, John the Baptist apparently spoke out against it, said it was sin. He needed to repent. Well, that woman regretted it because he wouldn't want to switch to being with the powerful king. And so uh, she was angry at him and uh, Herod didn't like it, but on an evening when they were being entertained by dancing and he was uh, partaking probably in some wine, he made a promise, whatever you want, I'll give it to you. Uh, this daughter goes out and talks with her mom, what? we can get anything. And she asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter. That's pretty brutal. Well, that's a lot of anger. <laughs> Uh, towards John the Baptist and towards his message. Uh, he was already imprisoned there, and his disciples knew it. Um, but Herod, at that point, was unwilling to do anything to John. He just had him in prison. And yet, because of this promise he had made, he, he held back a little bit in his heart, and then he finally just let it move forward and said, well, I made the vow. I cannot go against my vow. And John the Baptist was beheaded. Uh, it's a powerful moment in history, really, in looking at the story of Herod, which comes to completion later on. Uh, even when he has Jesus in his very presence, it's more as an entertainment or to mock him than to give him a fair trial. And so Herod is a picture for us of a seared conscience, a conscience that succumbed to pleasure and continually rejected God's message being sent to him. Just a few chapters earlier, we heard of this idea that, um, of light. And if you respond to the light you have, God gives you more. If you reject the light he keeps giving you, then eventually your heart gets hardened and you just walk in the darkness. And Herod rejected the light, rejected the message, rejected the message. And then finally, even against his own conscience... Even against his own conscience, he said, well, I'm going to let this man's head be beheaded, be taken off. He had a disregard for the gospel, for the message of John the Baptist. Then he took offense to it, and then he attacked it. And we can see this, that hearts get hardened towards the Lord. They, they get angry, and eventually it comes out in attack. And so often the attacks on our faith seem new to us today, and yet they're ancient. They've been going on since the moment that message came out before Jesus arrived, preparing the way for him. But we just have to be careful that it's the gospel that offends people and not ourselves in the way we carry it. <laughs> but the gospel does offend. And we're seeing more and more of the offense and the disregard in our nation and very few attacks. But around the world, the attacks continue on the gospel and those who share it. 
Uh, Mark Masterson, author and pastor, uh, shares this of a, of a modern-day missionary. Uh, he says, With his hands tied behind his back, missionary J.W. Tucker was beaten. And then with 60 of his Christian compatriots, they were thrown into a crocodile-infested Bomokande River. And it wasn't ISIS or Al-Qaeda who claimed responsibility in uh, 1964. It was the hands of the Congolese rebels that took them and put them to death. And often when we hear these stories, he says our instinct is to feel sorry for them. Or to say, oh, what a life cut short and wasted. Um, how could this happen? We have a holy empathy, and we should, for their wife and children and survivors of these kind of terrorist attacks. And yet, biblically, he understood what he was doing. And that day, heaven gained heroes. In the grand scheme of God's good and pleasing and perfect will, uh, the attack on this man led to the gospel spreading amongst these people. And so often our world wants us to take in a story that tells you you're going to get your happily ever after. That's the way we love stories to end, happily ever after. We see this man, Tucker, J.W. Tucker, understood that God promises much more than happily ever after. He promises happily forever after. And that's what John the Baptist understood. He knew Jesus must become greater. He must become lesser. But he preached and he was not afraid to follow the Lord's will. You see, Tucker didn't fear death because he had already died to himself and to the Lord. It was an is a risk that led him to go into the Congo during a civil war at the time, and yet he counted the cost. A fellow missionary friend, Morris Plotz, looked at him before he went and he said, if you go in, I don't think you're going to come out. And he replied to him, well, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He just told me I had to go in. It's that kind of commitment that John the Baptist shows us and that reminds us the road isn't easy. But Jesus has indeed given us all we need for our mission. Even his own family thought he was crazy. Jesus' brothers and sisters wanted to seize him because they're like, what is he doing? He's not even caring for himself. His friends and neighbors he grew up with, the ones that should have known, he's different. Something's always been different about him. They should have been saying, now we know why. But they were rejecting him. And even to the highest authorities, God gave the opportunity for repentance. And yet they attacked. But this is a pretty important point in history. Because Jesus began to move from him carrying the message. And he turned to the twelve whom he selected. And what does he do? In verse 7, he calls them, and he begins to send them out two by two, giving them authority over the unclean spirits. He said, take nothing for your journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. But just wear sandals and don't even put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. 
In other words, don't go to a house and say, well, this one's not as comfortable, but I met some Christians up there, uh, some people who like Jesus, and it'd be more comfortable. He's saying, enter a house. If they believe in me, stay there. If they listen to your message, stay there and minister to them. And then he tells them that in in any place that will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, they have a disregard for the gospel, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed many with oil who were sick and healed them. And so... Uh, This is a huge moment in history when Jesus has been equipping them and now he's unleashing them to multiply the gospel. He's saying, you've been with me for a little while, you've heard my message, now I'm going to send you out. And so how does he send him out? What did they go with? What does it look like for them? Well, there's some key things within this. The first is the disciples went with God's presence says, my authority I give to you. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove and resided in him, giving us a model for Holy Spirit-empowered ministry. And so the Holy Spirit, I believe he anointed them with the Holy Spirit to go out and empower them for the mission they were going to be on. And it points ahead to us. Jesus in the Great Commission sends us out. And he says, lo, I am with you always. And he told his disciples, you know what? Unless I go, then the helper cannot come, who is the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at this, we see the same things he provided for the 12 are provided for us. Both in the Great Commission and as we see the Holy Spirit arrive in Acts, he says, you will receive power to be my witnesses. And so they went with Jesus' presence, his authority, and his power. But they also had to go trusting in God's provision. He didn't let them take anything with them. He said, you're on my mission. I'm going to provide for you. Now, we're not all sent out, called to leave things behind, but we are called to trust in the Lord to provide. That's one of the fun parts of being a part of a starting church, right? Is we've got to trust the Lord to provide in whatever way he sees fit. And God always seems to do so in the most unexpected ways. And I get to see those, and often you all don't get to see them. But even when I went and spoke a couple weeks ago up at Cathedral Rock Church, who launched us out, that a new family there, several new families there, and One of them just wrote me a note after church to say, I felt led uh, to give to Incline Church. I'm not sure why, but then uh, this is the amount God put on my heart. And we were just humbled and blown away. God provides when and how he desires to when we trust in him. And yet so often we want to rely on ourselves and our own provision, our own plans, instead of being open-handed is what we call it in our core values. We don't want to be open-handed with God, saying everything we have is yours, Lord. Use it as you will. Use me as you will. And so they had to trust in his provision as well. And then they came and they went with God, the gospel proclamation that the kingdom is here, repent and believe. Your hearts are far from God. You're doing religion. 
The sacrifices were always meant to restore their hearts as the Israelites to God, restore their relationship with God. And so they went with that message. It says they preached the message of repentance, just as John the Baptist has preached, just as Jesus was preaching. The good news, pointing to Jesus being here and to a gospel that they had yet to fully grasp or understand, but was being unveiled to them even as they went out. And then they went with a purpose. God gave them a purpose to, Jesus gave them a mission. You're going to go out, you're going to minister, you're going to share the gospel. And when one place hears it, then you're going to move on to another place. And then another place. And you're going to continue to share the gospel and to spread the word of God. Now, interestingly, they went two by two. Couldn't he have gotten more done if they just went out, 12 of them, to 12 different spots? Now, admit it, when you hear that going out two by two, you think of guys with white shirts and a bike. Uh, There are different religions that do that. And I say, whoa, they probably have got something right that we're missing. I think in our culture, we often talk about evangelism individually. It's an individual burden. And we very often forget the power of community in evangelism. The power of having somebody beside you when you're sharing with someone. The power of having somebody go with you and talk about the gospel. The power of bringing somebody into a community of believers so they can see the expression of the gospel lived out. The power of praying for one another or being able to talk back and forth together about how life's going on mission. And so even when we do, we're a church that does a thing called base camp, right? We train people up, equip, and unleash disciple makers. But we want to do so so that you all can have conversations and say, how's that going? Even within our men's studies, our women's studies, our home groups, we want you to be able to invite people in, and that's happening. People who don't need to attend Incline, but maybe that's their first step getting back to Jesus Christ, is being in a community with other believers. You don't have to go it alone. Often Dan and I will talk and he'll share, like, I've got this opportunity at work and he's alone there, but he's not alone because he shares with me and I pray over that because I know he's in the midst of a battlefield. And so we have to lift one another up. We have to partner together and be willing to share and even ask each other what we're doing. One, it keeps us accountable to go, but then it gives us the strength we need because it's hard. It's hard to get rejected. It's hard when people ignore you and don't want to hear your message. It's going to get harder when people attack. I don't know when it'll come. I'm not a prophet in that area. But it's coming. Every society is turned on the gospel at some point. And every society will at some point. We know the story. So what is God calling you to do? We are better together. We are ascent people. We are ambassadors. God's making his appeal to us to be reconciled and through us to be reconciled to God. And so as we look at all of those pieces, they're part of what we have in our lives today. And we believe we're called to equip and unleash disciple makers into homes, neighborhoods, schools, workplaces, and communities. Just as Jesus sent them out, we are called to be sent out from here on a Sunday. This isn't the end. This is the beginning of our week. It's where you come and you get refreshed and you you get equipped uh, to move ahead. 
and to move forward. I want you to understand a little bit about human history and what the unique opportunity you have of being sent by Jesus is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created male and female in his image. God was for us in creation. He was for you. He created you not because he needs us, but because he desired a relationship with us, unique amongst all his creation. Walking in the garden with Adam and Eve, desiring to be, among, be with us and talk with us. And then as we move throughout the Old Testament and God begins to reach out to us once again. He makes a covenant with the people, with Abraham and then with the nation Israel who would come from that family. And he says, I am with you as a nation. Follow me. Follow these guidelines in the Ten Commandments and restore that relationship with me. Let the world know that I am Yahweh. I am the one true God. God was with us. But in the midst of that, he always pointed to something more. He pointed us through the prophets more and more to a Messiah that would come. God is one of us. That's Jesus Christ. He came down, born in a manger, grew up in the town of Nazareth. Everybody knew him there. They knew his family. They knew his character. But they couldn't believe God in the flesh, fully God, fully man. It's a mystery. And he had a powerful point in history in why he was able to come and die for us. And now, when Jesus rose again from the grave, we have God in us. If you have trusted Jesus Christ alone for salvation and forgiveness of sin, the Holy Spirit dwells in you and transforms you from the inside out to be like Christ and empowers you to share the gospel, to be a witness. To see the greatest miracle of all of hardened hearts being softened by the gospel and going from eternity apart from God to eternity with God. I didn't put it on the slide, but the next step is what? Us with God forever in his presence, in the place he's preparing for us. Now, this is what God has given us. This is a life centered on Jesus. This is what he started with the 12, but it's multiplied. Despite the nose, despite the killing of Jesus on the cross, it has continued to multiply and grow and go to where we're here in Colorado Springs, Colorado today, worshiping the Lord this morning. That's the power of equipping and unleashing disciple makers. And so for us, (coughs) excuse me, we have four core things we ask you to do in this area. I want to review them this morning. We want you to pray and watch. It starts with prayer. Who are you praying for that is far from God? And then, not only do we pray, we pray expectantly. So are you watching and waiting, saying, God, show me a step I can take. Do I need to take with them? And here's the steps you can take after that. But it begins with praying and watching. And sometimes that praying and watching is praying, watching, and waiting. But waiting expectantly that God will use you. Second thing you can do is connect in relationship. Invite them to a celebration. We love to celebrate. We love to eat. And we love to recreate. That's Colorado, those three words. 
celebrate, eat, and recreate. But we do those in our natural rhythm of life. Why not invite somebody into your community or your family in order to do that? Because you care about them as a person. And then empathize with people when they're hurting. It's been amazing to hear how many of you say, I, you know, I just thought I should offer to pray, and they allowed me to pray. Or they said, yeah, I wouldn't mind you praying. And yet, in all other areas of their life, they are angry at religion or God. And when we offer to pray, the answer is very rarely no. Occasionally, but not all the time. And then serving without any bait or switch, uh, but just serving out of a care for them as a person. And then inviting to come and see. So a lot of people did with Christ's ministry. Come and see Jesus. Come and see him who has healed me. Come and see he who has changed my life. Come into God's community. And so if you hear somebody say, I'm new to town, or I wasn't ready for this, or uh, I'm not in a good spot, then you can see and know, just hear those in your mind and say, ooh, this is a good opportunity. I'm not in a church. Oh, well, let me tell you about what we're doing or this isn't going well. Well, you should come and be encouraged on Sundays. Or come to our group. Finally, the time will come and as you're walking with the Spirit and you're trusting God and you're actually watching for opportunities, you'll get a chance to share your story of God in your life and to share God's story, the gospel message. So we are equipping and unleashing disciple makers. And we have a lot of opportunities for your next steps coming up. We have a party in the park. You can invite people too. Good Friday, Easter. And after Easter, we're going to talk about forever after. I want you to imagine about heaven again. I want to dispel some myths about heaven and just base what we understand on what God wrote and ask ourselves, wow, do we really live as if that's our home? And look forward to it? Or are we clinging to this world? So those are opportunities coming up. You see, we need to trust in the promise and presence and the provision of God. And expect that we're going to face no's. But sometimes a no is a not yet. We need to be persistent and patient. You know, it's amazing as you look at Jesus' own family. His half-brother James was one of those skeptics. Probably one of those who came to claim him. But when Jesus rose again and appeared to him, James' life did a 180. And he began to lead the church in Jerusalem and wrote us a letter that informs our lives today with practical wisdom of following and living for Christ. See, we use this term, unleashed. <laughs> we want to unleash disciple makers. And, and we don't want you to be bound by false pictures of yourself false expectations, false hope. We want you to be unleashed for God to use you. And we say, well, yeah, that would have been the most amazing short-term missions trip ever, going out healing and casting out demons and, and being able to speak to people the gospel and have them respond. And yet, we have that very opportunity today to go out and represent Christ each and every day in our lives. We want you to be unleashed and realize you are powerful you are meant to impact the kingdom of God you don't have to have my role I'm here to equip you but uh, I need to release you and allow God to use you where you're at during the week and that's what we pray for that's what we pray over you during the week 
because we want you to understand that God has so much more for you and that you can live for the happily forever after. And when you do that, people will start to wonder, why do they have joy in the midst of trial? What's different about them? It doesn't seem like a false hope. They have a confidence we don't understand. And the next month, people of the world do start to listen and think about and consider who Jesus is. You can't avoid it. And so be ready. God wants to use you. He's provided for you. He's given you a purpose. He's given the proclamation of the gospel. Will you step in obedience and live it out? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for who you are. (laughs) What an amazing time in history that you chose us to be created and to walk in. God in us. Your very Holy Spirit empowering us us weak, imperfect vessels to carry forth the perfect message of the gospel. And somehow you get more glory when you allow us to share the gospel. And the world sees that, yeah, we're broken, and we're being mended and transformed one step at a time, but we're not sharing the gospel because we're great or we're smarter, but because it has changed our lives. And no one can argue against our personal testimony of what you've done because it's our story. And no one can get to heaven except for you through your story of the gospel. And Lord, I thank you that Jesus modeled from an early time that his vision and his purpose always was to be ascending God. Jesus was sent to us and now we are sent into the world that the world may know that you loved us and you sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have happily forever after as your child in your family. In Jesus' name, amen.